words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You can be seated. Well, in the bulletin, I titled this sermon, The Power of God's Word, but that was earlier in the week, and as I started working on the sermon, I thought a more appropriate title would be Saved from Perfectionism, Saved from Perfectionism, because I want to preach primarily based on our passage from Romans, and in the letter to the Romans, Paul has been making this case that we are not saved by keeping God's law perfectly. We cannot keep God's law perfectly. Therefore, we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so that's the message I want to bring to you uh, this morning. I know it's something that we've heard again and again, but it's important to refresh ourselves in this basic gospel truth that we're not saved, we're not made righteous in the eyes of God by obeying the law perfectly, the law of God perfectly. We're saved by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. I think there are probably a lot of people in our world today, in our culture today, that don't really feel much pressure to obey the law of God perfectly, and they're not concerned too much about that. But I do think almost everybody can relate to this pressure to justify, the sense that I have to justify my existence, that somehow I have to prove to myself or to other people, or to my family or to my coworkers, somehow I have to prove to the world that I am worthy. And as I was studying this sermon, I came across an article that talked about this, this idea that really there are two laws at work in us. There's the law of God, which is the capital L law. This is God's law written in Scripture. This is the Ten Commandments, the Sermon on the Mount, all the thou shalts and thou shalt nots of Holy Scripture, the law of God with a capital L. And then there's this lowercase l law. This is the pressure that we put on ourselves. This is the pressure that the culture puts on us, these certain standards that we have to meet to feel worthy or justified. I think everybody lives with that kind of pressure from time to time. He gives an example. He says, you know, the woman on the street may not have thought about the Ten Commandments since she was in second grade Sunday school. She may not have thought about God's law for a long time, but she is intimately acquainted with the law of Madison Avenue, which says, thou shalt be successful, thou shalt be independent, thou shalt be authentic, thou shalt be skinny. The demands of the culture, the secular culture, to justify ourselves. So whether we're talking about small l law or God's law, which is what Paul is concerned about and what we ought to primarily be concerned about, the ultimate law, the apostles' teaching can free us. It's liberating. It can free us from this pressure to justify ourselves and certainly the pressure to justify us before God. So I want to talk to you about what this passage teaches here in Romans chapter 10, verses 5 through 17. Moses starts with the righteousness that's based on the law. He's talking here about two kinds of righteousness. 
the righteousness that's based on the law and the righteousness that's based on faith. And the righteousness that's based on law says that the way of salvation is by doing the right thing. Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, he says in verse 5, that the person who, listen, does the commandments shall live by them. He's talking about the law that came through Moses, the Ten Commandments, of course, but all the other Mosaic laws, the laws related to food, the kosher laws, we call them, the ceremonial laws, even the moral law that God gave Moses. And he says that according to this way of righteousness, a person has to obey these commandments. A person has to do these things. The person who does the commandments shall live by them. The righteousness of the law. And, you know, I have found that many people today still think that this is what the Christian faith is about. That the Christian faith says, if you only do these certain sorts of things, then you'll be justified, you'll be right in the eyes of God. It's a persistent idea. It's a wrong idea, but it persists. I read a biography of uh, Billy Graham last summer. And in this biography, there's a scene where Billy Graham goes to the White House. He goes to see President Truman. And uh, he was 31 at the time, and he met President Truman. And they started talking, and Billy Graham asked him about his faith and his beliefs and his religious background. And so Truman said, well, I try to live by the Sermon on the Mount and the Golden Rule. And Billy Graham said, Mr. President, that's not enough. You've got to have faith in Jesus Christ. You've got to have faith in the cross of Christ. And uh, unfortunately, Billy Graham leaked that conversation to the press, and Truman was not happy at all. Created a rift between them, but he learned. He learned how to deal with presidents. But that idea, that, that view, I try to live by the golden rule, and I try to live by the, the Sermon on the Mount, that, that that's the Christian faith. That's what many people believe even today, still today. You're righteous by keeping the rules, or at least trying the very best that you can. But what Paul has been arguing, and and we've been looking at, we've been going through the lectionary readings in Romans this whole summer, and what Paul has been arguing throughout this book is that no one keeps the law perfectly. No one can do it. Not a president, not a pastor, not my sweet elderly grandmother. Nobody can keep the law of God perfectly. And the only way to be justified by the law of God is to keep it perfectly. So, Paul says, to kind of summarize his position, Romans chapter 3, verse 20. This is an important verse in Romans. By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight because no one can meet that standard. God's law is good. God's, God's law is gracious. God's law is a guide. God gave the people of Israel this law to guide them. And that was good, and that was gracious of God to do that. God gives us, as New Testament believers, his word, his law, and the Spirit works in us to help us fulfill the the ultimate law, the royal law of love. And that is a good thing, and that helps us grow in sanctification and in holiness and Christ-likeness. But we don't meet it perfectly. And so we can't be saved by doing the right thing, not 
righteousness that's based on the law. That's not the way of salvation. Paul says this is how God saves us. It is by faith. It is a righteousness based on faith. Verse 6, but the righteousness based on faith, that's the contrast, says, and here he's going to quote Moses. This is very interesting. Moses represents the Old Testament law. Moses in this passage, what he's quoting from is Deuteronomy chapter 30. Moses is giving his, his farewell address to the people of Israel. It's his final sermon or one of his final sermons to the people of Israel. And he's exhorting them to live according to the law of God. And um, what Paul does in this passage is he takes what Moses says about the law and he applies it to Jesus Christ. And, he, and so Moses said, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. Moses said that originally. Or do not descend, or, do not descend into the abyss. You, you don't have to, Moses' point, you don't have to go to lofty heights to find the law and salvation through the law. You don't have to descend into the abyss to find it. It's right here, Moses said. The law is right here. It's on your lips. He's teaching them the law. They knew the law. And he's saying you just have to live according to the law. But Paul takes that sermon and he reappropriates it. He revises it. He remixes it, if you will, and applies it to Jesus Christ. And he says, you don't have to go to heaven to get salvation through Christ. Christ has come down. You don't have to descend into the abyss to raise Christ up from the dead. God has raised him from the dead. God has done the work in Jesus Christ. You don't have to go to lofty heights. You don't have to go to the abyss. It's what God has done in Jesus Christ. The word is near you. The word of salvation is near you. Well, what does the word say, verse 8? The word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. This is what Paul is saying. God's way of salvation now is in the word, not of the law, but in the word that we proclaim about Jesus Christ. And the wonderful thing about this word is that it's accessible, it's near us, and it's available to everyone who hears the word being proclaimed. The good news is, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, basic confession of the early church, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, not the Roman empire jesus is lord confess that with your mouth put your allegiance put your trust in jesus and the confession is not enough just to say i believe in jesus i believe that jesus is lord but believe it in your heart that is the center of your life pin your hopes on jesus christ the core of your existence ought to revolve around the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord and God raised him from the dead and you're pinning your hopes of salvation on this Jesus that God raised from the dead. God raised him from the dead, vindicating, demonstrating that he really is the Lord, demonstrating that his death on the cross really does pay for the sins of the world. And then Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So that's how accessible 
this way of righteousness before God is. It's a matter of simply believing and confessing the truth about Jesus. And then he says it's universal. This message is universal. It's for everybody. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And we know as we've read the lectionary readings this summer, we know that Paul agonized. Paul was brokenhearted over the fact that many of his fellow Jews did not come to faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul saw his mission as sharing the gospel to Jew and Gentile to bring them together in one family under Christ. It's a universal message that brings everybody together, that God's love and God's salvation is for everyone. It's not just for the Jew or the Gentile, but he says it's for anyone who calls on the name of the Lord. And so there's a unity in the gospel because it's a universal gospel. And how we need to hear that today in our culture. And the church needs to be out front somehow proclaiming this message to a culture that is so divided. And we just saw yesterday in the news what happened in Charlottesville, Virginia, didn't we? Did you see that where there was protesters and the counter protesters and somebody took a car and slammed into the crowd and killed somebody? And there's so much hate and there's so much division and there's so much racial tension. What does the world need? It needs this message of God's love for all people. And we can all be brought together around Jesus Christ. And that's why the church needs to be a witness to that. And that's why it's wonderful to be part of a church where we can say to everyone, no matter what your background, no matter what your race, no matter what your economic status, whether you've got a Ph.D. or no degree, we're one in Christ because of the love of God. And he calls all of us to himself. And this message of salvation goes out to all. It's a wonderful message. It's a liberating message that we're saved not by based, based on what we have done, but what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. I love the way Martin Luther put it, the Protestant reformer. We're celebrating this year the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And Martin Luther said this. This is the Heidelberg Disputation. He says, the law says do this and it's never done. Grace says, believe this, and everything is done. And there's such freedom, and there's such security, and there's such liberation if you truly believe this. The law says, do this, you got to do this, and you never feel like you measure up. But the message of grace, that we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, says, just believe this, and you're justified. Yes, we have to grow. We're called to grow in holiness. But believe this, And everything is already done. And I'm grateful. I don't know about you. I'm grateful that this is God's way of saving people today. I'm grateful for the peace and security that comes from knowing that God has saved us based on what he's done in his son, Jesus Christ. I I think we can use our our gospel lesson as an an illustration. Um, The second gospel lesson that we read... um, Because here we have Jesus, this great miracle. He's demonstrating that he is Lord, that he is Lord of creation by walking on the water. And Peter wants to experience something like that. Of course, Peter goes out. He's bold. 
and he steps out on the water and he takes his eyes off Jesus. And when he takes his eyes off Jesus, he sees the wind and it says, verse 30, he's afraid. The wind and the waves and he's afraid and he begins to sink. He's taking his eyes off Jesus. And I think we can make an illustration here when it comes to our faith and our justification and our righteousness before God. If we take our eyes off Jesus, if we begin to look to ourselves and our good works and what we have done or what we haven't done, or if we begin to think about standing in the presence of a holy God at the end of our life, at the judgment seat of God, if we begin to think of that and not have our eyes on Jesus, we can sink. We can sink into despair. We have to keep our eyes on Jesus. And Jesus, out of his grace, then reaches out his hand and takes hold of Peter and calls him to greater faith. And that's what we're called to. Oh, you of little faith, he says, why do you doubt? Let's keep our eyes on Jesus, the Son of God. Well, Paul goes on and he, after arguing for this new way of righteousness, a righteousness that's based not on the law but on faith, or righteousness that's been revealed in Jesus Christ. He says this is a message that has to get out because whoever calls on him on the Lord will be saved, verse 13. But how then will they call on him in whom they've never heard or now not believed? And how are they going to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they going to hear without somebody preaching? And how are they going to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Beautiful feet. Why? Because it's a messenger coming, running with a beautiful message of good news. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Not everybody is going to respond to this message of salvation. Not everybody is going to believe. But still, we have to preach the gospel. Still, we have to put the message out. Still, from the pulpit, it has to be proclaimed. And in our small groups, we have to share this gospel. And in our neighborhoods, we have to share this gospel. And with friends and family, we have to pray for opportunities to share this message of salvation because faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so this has to be front and center in our ministry, the proclamation of this good news. Let me close with kind of a um, cute story recycled a little bit but i like the point that it makes maybe you've heard this story before of the man in the pit kind of like poor joseph was put in the pit this man fell into a pit and couldn't get out himself and many people came by a subjective person came along and said i feel for you down there in the pit an objective person came by and said it's logical that somebody would fall into that pit A Pharisee came by and said, only bad people fall into pits. A mathematician calculated how he fell into the pit. An IRS agent asked, are you paying taxes on the pit? A self-pitying person said, you haven't seen anything until you've seen my pit. A charismatic Christian said, just confess that you're not in the pit. An optimist said things could be worse. A pessimist said things will get worse. A Baptist preacher ran home to look up how many times the word pit was in the Bible. Now, I'm going to make fun of myself. An Anglican priest offered a prayer for those stuck in the pit or other vexing circumstances. 
I think that's in the prayer book somewhere. A lawyer offered his services to make the responsible parties pay for the pit. A psychologist asked how, much, how the pit made him feel. His children asked him if this meant that their trip to the mall was canceled. His father came by and said, you made your bed, now sleep in it. Jesus, seeing the man, took him by the hand and lifted him out of the pit. Apart from Christ, we're in this pit of sin and guilt and the pit of God's just judgment against us, our own condemnation, not living up to our own standards or the other standards that people set for us. The good news is that Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Lord, has come to rescue us and pull us out by his grace. Amen. Amen. We thank you, O God, for that truth and that basic message that we need to hear from time to time just to be refreshed in this way of salvation that is so liberating and free. Help us to believe it deeply in our hearts. Help us to take this message out and to live in the world in such a way that demonstrates the freedom and the liberation that we've experienced through you and your way of salvation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.